This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Here's what's on the Oakley Show podcast for Tuesday, November 17th, 2020. We speak to one Toronto bar owner who understands the appeal of nostalgia and is using it to adapt and keep his business afloat. We hear from the special advisor to the Director General of the World Health Organization. Some writing can be so bad it becomes comical and we find out about a contest that celebrates the worst sentences with which to start a book. And Canada's Privacy Commissioner is getting new authority and power. All of this starts now. What are some of these businesses doing to hang on? The Farside Bar in Toronto has an interesting way of reimagining itself. Its co-owner, Mike Reynolds, has joined us on the line to explain all. Mike, good to have you on board with The Oakley Show. Good afternoon. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So the Farside Bar, you're in the East End, correct? Yeah, we're at uh, Broadview and Gerard. Yeah, nice neighborhood there. And uh, I got to say, not far from the Don Jail, actually. <laughs> yeah, we're right there. <laughs> yeah, no, and Bridgepoint Hospital. But uh, So what are you doing to hang on during the time of COVID when we're in the red zone and you can't have people coming into your establishment? Uh, what do you do? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, uh, we've, we've sort of have gotten a little bit creative. Uh, we uh, turned our uh, sort of back bar uh, video collection into a, a rentable uh, VHS library. Um, so if you've been to the bar, uh, we're sort of known for playing uh, videos on uh, the screen so that when you come in, you can uh, kind of check out any sort of like weird stuff that we've got um, in, the v- in our uh, VCR. So uh now we're making it available to everybody uh to rent and take home you got a stockpile of vcrs by the way i do actually yeah i've got uh i got a a pile of them um they've all got uh, hdmi adapters so you can rent them along with the videos uh and uh kind of like uh relive uh 2002 you name the year i guess uh, I've, I've got you covered. 84 keeps coming up. This is circa 1984, 85. VCRs were very much in vogue and all the rest, and VHS tapes uh, supplanted beta by that time. So what you're saying is you've sort of taken this step, uh, a, a step back, as it were, out of necessity. So, I mean, you guys were kind of known that uh, films were always playing there and some uh, eclectic stuff. So now you're just sort of trying to leverage that and turn it into a rental opportunity, if you will. Yeah, yeah, and so then, uh, yeah, you can drop by the bar and grab the provisions for the weekend. You can grab a, a six pack of some craft beer and uh, and whatever weird stuff you want to watch. Uh, something to make it a little more interesting than your your regular streaming services, and uh, you know, are, are asking you if you're still watching. Um, you know, just to, just to kind of make you remember what watching movies was like. <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah, no, I understand it perfectly, and it, I mean, it's a hook uh, so that people also remember that you're still there on the street in their corner, uh, on the corner in their uh, neighborhood. So I guess it's, uh, I don't know, will this keep the wolf from the door, or is it strictly a game, you know, uh, keeping it in mind, keeping your uh, premises in mind? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's that's part of it, too. Uh, it's also just sort of a way or... or uh um, I guess an incentive just to, to drop by and to, to see, uh, you know, see a regular bartender. Maybe he'll recommend you a movie and uh, give you a package to go. So what are some of the titles that you've got there uh, that somebody could rent? And give us a sense for the rental fees, even with the VCR. If you don't have one at home with an HDMI <laughs> cable, you might want to rent the apparatus. 
yeah, so it's like it's forty bucks for the weekend. You get uh, three tapes and the VCR and the adapter. Uh, for as far as like selection goes, uh, we've got uh, five thousand plus uh, tapes in the back. Um, when you sign up, you can sort of uh, ask for three of them, and then I bring them up to the front, and they become rentable and available. Um, but uh, yeah, so like for the classics, I guess uh, you know you want to watch your your Robocops and your your Evil Dead and. Uh, Terminator. Um, recently, I, I watched Uncle Buck for the first time in a long time. Uh, a little bit of uh, John Candy there is just, uh, just really, really good for you. Um, but then we've got some really weird stuff too. I mean, that's the other side of of uh, renting VHS tapes is you get uh, sort of the more um, special interests. We'll call it. Uh, I've got some juggling tutorials to teach you uh, how to how to juggle. Uh, I've got some body break uh, diet videos. Um, I've got one uh, called Alphabet Soup, where mm. two dogs uh, teach you the alphabet. Nice. Um, all kinds of weird stuff. So Yeah, no, no, that's a Friday kind of night right comes. there. I think you've yeah. defined a Friday night in my world. But, you know, I guess a lot of people would hanker for nostalgia now, thinking that, you know, there was a time when everything was more, uh, less complicated, let's say, uh, except trying to get the VCR from blinking 12. I could never master that myself. But, <laughs> so so this is where uh, you're taking it, and it's a good hook, uh, and I hope it works for you. I mean, uh, barring that, and we're staying in the red zone, is there a plan mm. B at all? Uh, well, this is it. This is plan B. I mean, we're, we're kind of, uh, sort of buckling up for, for a tough winter and, um, yeah, sort of any, any real reason that, uh, that you want to drop by would be, would, would be the best, uh, would be best, you know? Right. But you can sell hooch to go. That's one of those things on the takeaway and delivery, right? Well, absolutely. Uh, yeah, we've got all kinds of craft beer, um, uh, all kinds of stuff to go. Right. And you're selling popcorn as well, if I got it right. Uh, yeah, uh, it's free popcorn, just like Jumbo Video back in the day. You can come and fill a paper bag <laughs> while you look at the while you look at the videotapes. No, you know that's the best. Uh, you're really taking it back about twenty five, thirty years. Jumbo Video, Blockbuster, as well. They're not around, but uh, you have now positioned yourself as somebody who is uh, hawking nostalgia, and it's a great <laughs> hook. No, you know what? I think I congratulate you for really uh, again. You got a shape shift because this is the hand you were dealt. Good for you, folks. Should know about it. You're there at uh, Gerard and Broadview in the city's east end. It's called Farside Bar. What are your hours? And uh, you've kind of given us an idea of the rental prices. Uh, whether what forty bucks with a VCR? If you got your own VCR, yeah, I mean, five bucks tapes. a tape is uh, the other side of it. Yeah, uh, five bucks a tape for for a night. But uh, we're open from uh, five to nine, uh, seven days a week, uh, except for Monday, and then uh, we open three to nine on weekends. Screw Netflix, Far Side Bar. You can get yourself, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, some of the old tapes the way we used to do. All right. Hey, Mike, uh, all the best to you in this endeavor, uh, and I hope you know it keeps your head above water. Yeah, thanks a bunch, man. You got it. Mike Reynolds, co-owner of the Farside Bar in Toronto, Gerard, and Broadview. Earlier today, the Director General of the World Health Organization was at an event at noon hosted by the Empire Club of Canada. That's Tedros Adhanan Ghebreyesus. And uh, while uh, we're trying to understand exactly how we would confront this thing, the genie seems to have gotten out of the bottle. Joining us on the line from Geneva right now is Dr. Peter Singer, Special Advisor to the Director General of the World Health Organization. Dr. Singer, appreciate you joining the Oakland Show in Toronto. Uh, Good afternoon or evening, as the case is uh, with you in Geneva. Do I have you there? Thank you, John. It's great to be. Yes, you do. It's great to be with you. Thank you very much, John. Uh, do you know what the Director General's message was uh, in part today? 
Yes, I do. His uh, key message was that the world is about to embark, hopefully, on perhaps the most daunting logistical and operational effort since the second war. That's the rollout of the COVID vaccine. He also said that that's based on an unprecedented scientific effort, reminded people to keep the public health fundamentals going in the meantime and during and after, and was very appreciative of Canada for its contribution to uh, the effort and to the access to COVID tools accelerator. So, Dr. Singer, I mean, uh, so logistics, uh, I mean, it's going to be a complicated endeavor. Uh, how might you foresee this best being rolled out? The prime minister earlier today, for example, was saying it may take the military to do it. They may be uh, more, I guess, uh, in, a, in a position to do this kind of thing. Would you agree? Yeah. Well, I mean, the local rollout issues are are going to be handled by local officials. I think that um, it's an incredible effort. It's based on, uh, John, an unprecedented scientific effort. It's developing vaccines in record time, more than 200 vaccine candidates, 50 in human trials, 10 in late-stage human trials. And in the last few days or weeks or or last week, we got a couple of signals of very, very good news, uh, encouraging news, interim news on a couple of the vaccines. So um, we have to go from vaccines to vaccination. And I think that's the effort we're talking about. But very encouraging, very encouraging news. Any concerns with the narrow horizon by which the vaccines have been developed? I mean, Operation Warp Speed, uh, that with Moderna's uh they're uh, offering here and you've got Pfizer as well. I mean, but it's all been in a concentrated or accelerated time frame. Is there a concern there? Safety and efficacy is job one. We have to ensure the safety and efficacy of the vaccine and the World Health Organization will only um, support or endorse a vaccine that's safe and efficacious. Uh, job two is actually equitable allocation. You know, it's better to uh, vaccinate some people in all countries rather than all people in some countries. That's a better way to uh, save lives around the world, uh, to start up the global economy. And uh, none of us actually, John, is safe until all of us are safe because this virus travels around the world. So who would determine that? Well, um, you know, I mentioned that Dr. Tedros appreciated Canada for its strong political and financial support of the Access to COVID Tools Accelerator. In the context of that, the countries of the world meeting at the World Health Assembly have said vaccines are a global good. Uh, The World Health Organization is developing a a framework for equitable allocation um, around the world. So, for example, because there will be more people who need vaccination initially than the supply of vaccines, uh, priority would be given to health workers who are putting themselves in uh, harm's way to benefit their communities and also to uh, people who are likely to become sick uh, with the virus, older people, people with comorbid conditions and so on. But you've got countries who have actually uh, put down a stake uh, to reserve. For example, with the uh, Pfizer product, Canada has uh, 20 million uh, doses uh, that they've actually, I guess, pre-ordered, pre, uh, you know, in a speculative way, but uh, that's contracted with Pfizer. In the United States, I guess, uh, there's something like 50 million from uh, Moderna, and they're, they're thinking that uh, they may need, uh, I guess, hundreds of millions uh, within the year 2021. Would that be the lion's share? Uh, would there be enough to go around equitably, as you say, or would some countries, uh, you know, get priority positioning here? 
You know, Canada has seven uh, bilateral deals, but it's also one of the key contributors financially and politically to the Access to COVID Tools Accelerator. It uh, put $440 million in there, partially as an insurance policy because it's got a very wide portfolio of vaccines in there, and they're not all going to uh, prove to be uh, effective, um, and partially as a lifeline to 92 low- and lower-middle-income countries. And that's an act of charity on the part of Canada. It's also an act of self-interest uh, because uh, the national security of Canada is determined by dealing with this uh, virus globally. Dr. Tedros appreciated the government of Canada for its strong support of uh, vaccines as a global public good and for its uh, support to the international effort and to the World Health Organization. Again, with Dr. Peter Singer, Special Advisor to the Director General of the World Health Organization. So in the interim, uh, you know, before we have the vaccine, which could be the panacea, and everybody's on tenterhooks waiting for that, uh, what is the best approach or most effective response? Do lockdowns work in your estimation? How should we go about things? Yeah, so first thing to say, John, is it's not a panacea. It's not a silver bullet. It won't be an on-off switch. It'll take a while to roll out. Um, and it'll be vaccines and not a vaccine. But your question is a really good one because um, the heart of the response is actually the public health fundamentals. So uh, the World Health Organization has advocated for more than 10 months now that the core of that is testing, uh, isolating cases and, and supporting cases, tracing and quarantining contacts. Any country that's handled this virus has handled it like that. In addition, of course, the uh, other measures like masking, physical distancing, washing your hands, avoiding poorly ventilated spaces, and uh, and when necessary, as a last resort, the so-called uh, the, the so-called lockdowns. John, I think uh, we know at the World Health Organization that many countries, including uh, Canada and Canadians, are facing a challenge uh, right now. You know, we may be tired of COVID-19, but COVID-19 is not tired of us. It preys on inequities. It's a vicious virus. And uh, we really um, need to just get through the next few weeks and months uh, to get to the point where the vaccine starts to uh, roll out. The key message, though, is there is hope. Finally, let me ask you, because, I mean, there is a, a, a school of thought that believes there may be a credibility issue as far as the WHO is concerned, uh, perhaps having something to answer for in miscommunicating the, the severity of the pandemic at the outset. Uh, how do you respond to that? I think any independent and objective analysis will find that the World Health Organization rang the alarm bell loudly, early and effectively, that in the 10 months since uh, we did so and provided guidance and support to countries around the world, including very tangible support uh, like personal protective equipment and so on. Um, there's a wide variation of, for example, mortality rates across different countries, maybe a hundredfold. And those countries that followed the public health advice of uh, the WHO tended to do well. Having said that, there is an independent uh, ongoing review as there is in any crisis of this sort, we will certainly uh, look to learn any lessons. And I think that's also going to be the case with every country in the world. So I'm confident uh, in the actions of the World Health Organization. And of course, like every uh, great organization, we're very open to learning, uh, as we have done for the 73 years of our uh, 
our existence. The WHO in Canada has a very strong relationship, and we look forward to working very closely with uh, Canada, uh, a, a terrific international actor in the world today, because the only way we can deal with this, John, is together. That's how we dealt with smallpox, which killed 300 million people in the last century, more than all the wars combined. That's how we will uh, deal with COVID-19, with the nations of the world, World Health Organization, uh, acting together to defeat this virus. I appreciate your time from Geneva tonight. Uh, Thanks so much for your time, Dr. Uh, Singer. Thank you so much, John. You got it. Dr. Peter Singer, Special Advisor to the Director General of the World Health Organization. On the weekend, uh, Sunday was certainly a dark and stormy night, and it brought to mind something that I became familiar with many, many years ago. I was just starting my career, and it was the Edward George Bulwer-Lytton Fiction Contest that was the brainchild and is of Scott Rice, professor at San Jose State University, creating this contest (laughs) so far back. uh, It doesn't bear repeating or mentioning right here, but uh, Scott Rice has joined us on the line because it really does give uh, a certain ignominy of uh, our honorarium to... uh, Poor writing is what it is. Scott, good to have you on the Oakley Show in Toronto. Good afternoon. Good. Well, thank you for having me. Toronto's Listen, I mean, place, place to visit. It is. By the way, uh, I think I recall talking to you so many years ago. When did you first start this contest, and how did it come about again? I, I think it was about 1983 or something we, st- we started it. So uh-huh. we've been around for a few semesters. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, and so was it a part of the litter, uh, the, I guess, the English lit department uh, or per se, or was it just a, a fun romp that you decided to uh, implement with some students? Yes, it was. It was, yeah, a, a bit of a uh, hoot, you know, so I thought some fun to have. I ran across it was a dark and stormy night when I was in graduate school, and I mistakenly thought that it was uh, the product of uh, Bowler Lytton, you know, the person who gave us the last days of Pompeii. Mm. And he begins his novel, Paul Clifford, that way. But it turned out it had been around for a long time, and he was playing with it himself. So it's sly. It, it was less to hit bad his bad writing than my bad reading. <laughs> right, but now it's become synonymous with uh, the opening to any kind of really tawdry fiction or nonfiction. It was a dark and stormy right, night. Yeah, yeah. So you've adopted that, uh, and now you've got various categories in this contest. Uh, which I guess is an annual ritual or rite of passage here. Uh, tell me about some of the categories. I've been reading them on your website, and I just find it's a hoot. Uh, can you give us, like, for okay. example, the, the grand winner? Well, yeah, well, originally, you know, we wanted to have uh, just a bad opening sentence to an imaginary novel. But then we thought, well, heck, we just have one winner. That's, that's no fun. We want more people to have, uh, have a good time than that. So instead... Uh, uh, we created, started creating categories, you know, like detective fiction and uh, uh, science fiction and uh, romance and what we call purple prose, that kind of thing, and uh, just let people uh, turn their imaginations loose. We never did tell people what we wanted. We we decided to let the people in the contest make it up. <laughs> right. Uh, although you do sort of uh, have a set of guidelines that you put forward, uh, you don't want people necessarily to just sort of uh be derivative and use it was a dark and stormy night but the 2020 grand prize goes to uh, a young lady from san francisco uh can you show by way of example what bad writing is really uh this is the grand prize okay. after uh, one of our favorite categories is, is uh the, the, the bad metaphor the bad figure of speech her dear john missus slapped unambiguously in the windy breeze hanging like a pizza menu on the doorknob of my mind <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Remember, some years ago we had a we had a song, a popular song about the windmills, about the windmills of your mind. Yeah, yeah, no, I remember the song. Uh, everybody's talking at me, uh, Nelson. Yeah, yeah. And no, uh, you... I don't know. How people are commenting how ridiculous that metaphor is. I mean, uh, you ever you ever stood by a windmill? <laughs> I mean, they in my mind. Whap, yeah. whap, whap. <laughs> I, I hardly ever hear my mind going whap, whap, whap. I mean, it may, may be chittering and screaming, but not whap, whap, whap. Right. So it's a lousy metaphor, but. Uh, People have fun making up lousy metaphors. Well, I wonder, was she purposefully being bad, or uh, is that the point or purpose, or is there somebody somebody yeah. submits on their behalf? Oh, yeah, that's the point, is that we uh, that, that this, this sentences have to be original, uh, not something found in print, though we do have something in the website where we were putting on bad opening sentences from uh, from novels, but uh, we've, uh, uh, I say, just uh, turned people loose to do whatever they felt like they could do. And, uh, but I've all kinds of things. Like one was Dawn crept slowly over the sparkling emerald expanse of the country club golf course, trying in vain to remember where she had dropped her car keys. That's <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so starting a, uh, you know, realize that you, when you write, you, you create expectations of what you're going to, what's going to come next. In this case, the, the writer does that and then pulls a rug out from under the reader. So, all kinds well, of uh, literary offenses people play with. You know, but Scott, there's something endearing uh, of this kind of writing. I mean, I don't know that I could digest a full tome, but, uh, you know, when you read it, it sort of gives you pause to reflect. Writing ain't easy, but what it can do is... Oh, right. Uh, I have yeah, heard I'm, people say that uh, a lot of serious writers entered, though. Uh, I mean, so far, Stephen King hasn't entered or anyone like that. But the... Uh, I've heard people say that actually writing these is sort of easier than trying to write seriously. And uh, I suppose it's because just people are being irreverent and they, uh, they're they not worried about what uh, what the critics are thinking. I mean, how can you lose when you're trying to be bad? <laughs> well, well, that's the worst part of it. Uh, if you're trying to be bad and people are taking you seriously, there's something going wrong there. Uh, Scott Rice is with us. Professor at San Jose State University created this contest, the Edward George Bulwer-Lytton Fiction Contest. So uh, who was then Edward George Bulwer-Lytton? Uh, I understand he was uh, probably uh, more uh, famous in terms of sales than uh, his contemporary Dickens at the time. Uh, yes, he was. He was uh, uh, actually he was, came from a, a, a titled family, and he uh, just took up novel writing. He was a member of, uh, of Congress. Uh, I mean, rather of the uh, not, we call it the Congress here, a member of the uh, the House of Lords. And as a matter of fact, he uh, he did uh, Cal, uh, did Canadians a service when he was uh, foreign minister. He uh, he he put an end to a movement that was going to make British uh, uh, Columbia into a state. There was a gold gold rush up there, and a bunch of American miners went pouring up there, and then decided to do what Americans do, which is colonize. Mm. And uh, he put a stop to it. So. British Columbia is British Columbia and not uh, an, another state. Something for which I'm grateful. <laughs> right. Having honeymoon. I honeymooned there, as a matter of fact. Oh, you did? Oh, all right. Uh, on a dark yeah. and stormy night? No, uh, listen. Uh, no, I see... no, it wasn't quite, but I always say I associate Canada with lust because of that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, by the way, we do have a, 
one of these uh, submissions from Ontario, Canada, from Waterloo, dishonorable mention, David Lorne. Uh, Sally loved Jeff so deeply that if he were a pirate on a dread pirate ship and not an insurance adjuster, snarling and drinking, murdering and raping his way across the Caribbean, well, maybe not raping, it was a sentiment that counted, and he had a peg leg, <laughs> she, she would have gladly sawed off her own leg and sewed it to a stump with silken thread so he could dance again, holding her up since she was now a sudden amputee. That's good writing right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, that's let me, let me no, ask you, that's... Scott, how does somebody... How, how does somebody enter your contest? Is there any prize money? What are the rules? What do they need to know? Well, the grand prize winner makes me realize I haven't paid the, paid off the grand prize winner this year. We give the grand prize winner is uh, I say receives a pittance, which is uh, two hundred and fifty dollars. Hmm. But uh, other than that, I say people get to become content themselves with being household names, and uh, so it is. But uh, all you have to do is uh, there's a, the website. It's bulwerlitton dot com. Or for that matter, you can probably just Google bad writing contest and uh, you'll get the <laughs> Bulwer Lytton site and then uh-huh. just submit. And uh, you can submit as many as you want. We've, uh, you can go, go to the website. There's a form there where you can uh, you can enter things. And uh, my daughter put that together. She's my webmaster or mm. webmistress, I guess. So, <laughs> yeah. A lot when's, of, the, when's the deadline for submissions? Well, we always have a mythical deadline for uh based on April 15th, as I say, is the date for which uh, Americans make up uh, bad stories. That's the, uh, <laughs> the date for, uh, income taxes are due. <laughs> so, right. but, but really, it's by the, by the end of June. Oh. Something comes in by the end of June, and it gets uh, submitted to our panel of uh, undistinguished judges, and, uh, and then we take care of it. It takes a little while. It takes a few weeks to wrap up the judging. I see. All right. Uh, too many laughs, I guess, uh, interrupting things. There you go. Uh, that's the Bulwer Linton Fiction Contest. And uh, again, it's Triple uh, W, which, according to our friend Scott, Wretched Writers Welcome. Uh, you can find it at uh, Bad Writing Contest, as he said. Scott, good to talk to you. Uh, it's really been a pleasure. We'll watch with interest and see what's uh, submitted this, this coming season and perhaps many from uh, our own parts. Thanks so much for your time. Good. Thank you. You got it. Over and out. Scott Rice again. He's a prophet. San Jose State University created the contest. It was introduced in the House of Commons earlier today uh, by Navdeep Baines, the Innovation Minister. I'm talking about this Digital Charter Implementation Act, which would be effectively a digital charter updating our uh, privacy laws for uh, users in this country. It's been several decades since it was last uh, put in play or updated, and so uh, it certainly does need burnishing at uh, that level. There may be uh, some pitfalls in there as well, as opposition critics have pointed out. At first pass, though, it looks like uh, this was born out of necessity. Let's find out what the experts say. Samuel Trosso is one such cybersecurity privacy law prof at the University of Western Ontario, joining the Oakley Show this afternoon. Professor Trosso, good to have you on board. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. So uh, what do you make uh, at first blush of this uh, proposed digital charter? Well, this is something that's been uh, a long time coming. You know, this, uh, the, the, the current Privacy Act goes back to about 2000. And in 2000, they based the privacy rules on a 1980 uh, set of uh, principles. So it's, it's really, it's really, um, it, it, it really is up, not up to date. And it, it, it's good that they're doing this. 
I, I have a 124-page PDF in front of me, and this was tabled this morning, and there were a couple of different parts to it. But I think it's clear that they're, um, they're staying pretty much within the framework of the types of rules that they had, but they're just trying to expand them so they're a little easier to understand. They're also, and I think this is the most important part, they're giving the Privacy Commissioner expanded powers. One of the big problems has been, as, as an administrative agency, the Office of the Federal Privacy Commissioner has not had the authority to uh, put any teeth in back of its orders, and this is this is this is expanding that a little bit. So I think there's some good things in this act, although um, it, it's it's hard to say because there could be some problems in here. All right, as you cite, uh, giving teeth to the privacy commissioner, Daniel Terrien, who's asked for this for a while, uh, he can order a company to stop collecting data or using personal information to the point where companies can be fined 5% of their revenue or $25 million, whichever is greater, for the most serious offenses. Help me out here. Typically, what would those breaches be that would draw this kind of fine or censure? Well, I think it would, for something like that, it would have to be very serious. It would have to be sort of a, at the level of, <laughs> a very large company like um, a credit agency or 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 a, or a bank, not not a small mom and pop operation, uh, or or if you're dealing with um, a social media group like like Facebook, there's there's been a lot of controversy over the years between Facebook, for example, and the privacy commissioner, and I think that by putting in that percentage of revenue, they're trying to send a signal to the very very large holders of personal data that they have to take their obligations uh, to secure uh, personal data more seriously. Now, they're not going to impose uh, a, a fine like that just just out of nowhere. It would have to go through some type of adjudication and there would have to be an order. This is, this is something that would be, um, this is something I think that would be withheld for the most serious types of, uh, of cases where people are really hurt. Kind of like the Cambridge Analytica scenario, right? Scenario, right? Absolutely. Uh, Cambridge Analytica, uh, uh, Equifax, uh, people put their trust in financial institutions to hold data that's, that's very, very personal and that would identify them. And um, the, 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 these days we're seeing a lot of data breaches. And one of the other things that this uh, bill does is it... It enhances the it, it steps up the, the the reporting requirements when there's a data breach. Um, it's, it's very often the case that there's a very very serious breach of people's data, uh, and they don't really know about it for for quite a while. This will help the consumer in in that in that general in that general area. And again, it will give it will, it will give the uh, privacy commissioner um, the ability to um, really put some teeth into its orders. You know, what intrigues me as well, by uh, my understanding anyway, the commissioner could recommend fines to a new personal information and data protection tribunal. So uh, they would vet that, I guess, or uh, run it by a tribunal. How do you imagine this tribunal being set up? Well, it looks as if there's quite a few detailed provisions in there about um, how many people are on it. It looks like three. I think the idea is you want to be, you want to have um, sort of speedier administrative processes for these types of disputes to unfold so they don't have to go through all the levels of, of courts at first, which could take years and years and years and years. Right. Uh, and you did mention trust as well, uh, because you've got companies with uh, massive troves of personal data that have got to be held accountable, uh, how that 
data is being used or abused and they've got to be transparent so but what if the uh user is complicit in this for example uh, look i know uh you've got uh terms of agreement that you sometimes don't read the fine print and they can go on indefinitely uh you know with these big tech co's uh sidewalk labs who wanted to operate on the waterfront here in the city of toronto you know uh they were putting in all kinds of conditions or provisos that they would be you know have access to your data as much as they were trying to assuage us that hey there's no way or assure us that there was no way they were going to abuse it what if people uh sign over can sign their agreement one of the most important um, principles in privacy law is the principle of consent. And one of the, one of the things that this um, act does, again, at, at first glance, is it puts a little bit more teeth into the definition of consent, which was really very vague under the, uh, under the, under the existing law. It's very clear that people are signing forms that purport to give consent. These are user and user uh, agreements. And they're very, very long, complex legal documents that nobody really is going to understand. This, this, this law is making it clearer that people have to be given the opportunity to read something that is um, more understandable. And they can withdraw their consent, if I understand correctly. That's right. You can withdraw your consent, and there's a principle in here about data portability. You can withdraw your consent and go to um, another company if you don't like who you're doing business with. Now, in some situations, that's not really possible. Uh, if, you, if you have uh, the choice between two or three different credit agencies, maybe you can do that. But if you're, if you're, if you're, um, if you have monopolies or near monopolies like you know, Facebook and you know, Twitter, uh, it, it's hard. It's hard to imagine doing that. Again, with uh, Samuel Trosso, cybersecurity privacy law prof at the University of Western Ontario. You know, when we talk about uh, perhaps the criticisms coming forth earlier today, as this was first tabled, this is uh, the new digital charter. Uh, the Conservatives critic said if the Liberals truly cared about Canadians' privacy rights, they'd ban the Chinese telecom giant Huawei from operating in Canada. Is he right about that? Uh, n- no, and I and I just I just I just think that is just something that was said without paying a lot of attention to what's in the bill. And this is something that they've been talking about. And what I really think has to happen is the partisan actors really have to think about what the, what, what, what's in this bill and how it's going to really change, hopefully for the better, the position of consumers. So just, to just come out with that uh, right, right out of the gate doesn't really seem to make a lot of sense. You know, I was wondering, since you uh, cited Facebook and Twitter, for example, uh, they're before a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing in Washington, and the idea being that they have to account for themselves on several fronts, uh, not least of which is during the election recently completed, that uh, they were seen by some as publishers rather than platforms. You want to weigh in on that? I mean, Zuckerberg and uh, I guess it's Dorsey with Twitter uh, were both being skewered, saying that uh, they've sort of lost this uh, impunity from being sued because they are acting as publishers and uh, censoring or throttling or editing and so on and so forth. What are your thoughts on that? I think that's a very delicate balance. On the one hand, they, they can't be held to have gone through and vetted every single thing that is published on their, uh, on their, on their platform, just like the phone company can't be responsible for everything that's said on the phone. 
On the other hand, they're becoming so powerful and they're taking in advertisements that they do have the opportunity to vet and there has to be more responsibility in terms of their need to limit false advertising, which can have a very, very detrimental effect on the public interest. I don't think there's any easy answer to this. I was watching that hearing uh, a ways back uh, in, in the U.S. Senate, and what really bothered me about it is um, the senators really did not understand what they were dealing with at all. There needs to be uh, much better education. I think we need to have uh, elected officials who understand the realities of uh, digital communication a lot better than they do. We might be better off in Canada. And finally, I'll ask, uh, you know, or Europe, this is a question that's, uh, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with this, but I'll run it by you anyway. There's a core ruling in Austria. They say that could censor the Internet worldwide. Are you familiar with that? Yes, I did. I did. Ju- I did just have a chance to take a look at that. Um, I'm not really sure that an Austrian court, even if they're backed up by the European court, is going to be able to establish uh standards that are going to have an immediate operational effect in North America in terms of uh, taking things uh, offline. I I think that argument may be overstated a little bit. It's It's important to keep in mind what European countries are doing with respect to privacy, because if, if, if Canadian or U.S. businesses want to do want to do business in Europe, they have to comply with European standards. And I think this bill is actually bringing that up to date. But in terms of that Austrian uh, decision, that leaves too much uh, that leaves too much out in the open for us to really be spending a lot of time worrying about it right now. Right. In a nutshell, the leader of the Green Party was defamed for being a traitor and a fascist and all the rest. And uh, therefore, under Austrian law, the courts ordered Facebook take down and keep off any such post and do so around the world. So I guess uh, it was kind of extrajudicial or uh, extraordinary yes. in, in their ruling. It's really, it's, it's really not that clear how, how, how an Austrian court would have that kind of uh, power around the world. The other thing to keep in mind is that the law of defamation has very different standards in different countries. And, and, part, and part of a country's sovereignty is their ability to have, to have national laws. Uh, the, the law of defamation is very different in Canada than it is in the United States. And uh, different, different countries have different standards. So it, it, it creates a problem for one country to sort of like make, make, make a ruling that their, their standard is going to be applicable throughout the world. And again, uh, you, you want Facebook to have to be responsible in terms of the ads that they're taking in and uh, to, to do some type of do some type of uh, scrutiny, but they, they can't be they, they can't be they, they can't be held to account for every single um, statement that, that, that you know mil- tens of millions of people are putting up every day. It has to be a balance. Yeah. No more Austrians wanting to rule the world. That's the takeaway. Uh, Samuel Trosso, thank you so much for your time from London this afternoon. Okay, well, thank you for having me. You got it. Uh, Cybersecurity, privacy, law prop at the University of Western Ontario. That's a wrap for the Oakley Show podcast for Tuesday, November 17, 2020. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 Eastern. Turn the dial to 640. Listen live at 640toronto.com or search the name John Oakley on Spotify. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. 
Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio. 